What do you call that noise? Headphones at the ready, fire up the sub bass. The future is here and we're going surround sound. Well, we're talking about it anyway. I'm Mark Fisher. Welcome back to What Do You Call That Noise? The XTC podcast. And this is the episode where we look into the fine art of remixing. Before I introduce our guests, let's have our first teetotal drink recommendation in the series in which listeners match their listening pleasures to their tasting pleasures. This time we're going to Brazil, where Mariana Silva will tell us what she's drinking in Rio de Janeiro. What do you call that noise? My name is Mariana Silva and I recommend pairing the brilliant travels in Nihilon with coffee-flavored Coke and its bleak and dense take on fakeness overall not only playfully antagonizes with the artificiality of such unusual soft drink but also leaves us with a bitter taste in the very end. Fantastic. A bitter taste in the very end. Love it. Thank you very much, Mariana. I read a headline that said Coca-Cola is launching coffee Coke because who needs sleep anyway? It could just as easily have said XDC is launching travels in Nihilon because who needs sleep anyway? Uh, No more so than when it has been given the Stephen Wilson treatment. And I think that might even be a starting point in today's podcast. First, a speedy thank you to all the wonderful supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. You're all great. And among the greatest are the Knights in Shining Karma, whom I'll name check at the end of this episode. If you've been enjoying these podcasts and would like to keep them going, please head to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Now, I have to apologize from from the start that this podcast is 75% made up of people called Mark. We might have to resort to surnames, even if Fisher, Reed, and Smotroff (laughs) sounds like a dodgy firm of solicitors. First, I'll stay stay in Edinburgh with me uh, and say hello to Mark Reed. Hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. Hello. Um, uh, Mark is my go-to man in town when I need a blast of surround sound because he's got all the gear. Otherwise, I'd have nothing to do with him. Is that right, Mark? <laughs> yeah, there's a restraining order going through the courts at the moment, but we'll soon get that sorted. Yes, I read about that in the papers. Um, Mark is a veteran of several XTC podcasts and a keen collector of surround mixes. Now uh, across to San Francisco, California, to say hello to Mark Smotroff. Hello, Mark. Hello, how are you? Well, I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Well, thank you for, 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 for joining us. That's fantastic. Um Great to have you on. Mark works in marketing communications for audio uh, companies, including for many years DTS, which specializes in surround systems. He also writes about audio and has been published everywhere from EQ Magazine to Mix Magazine and Audiophile Review. And now, a big stereophonic drum roll for the very special guest on the podcast. It's Stephen Wilson. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. It's fantastic to have you with us. There are a million reasons we might want to have Stephen Wilson on the podcast. We could have had him as a solo musician whose sixth solo album, The Future Bites, came out earlier this year. We could have had him as the guitarist and singer of Porcupine Tree. We could have had him as a member of bands including Blackfield, Storm Corrosion and No Man. Uh, We could have had him as the winner of four Grammy Awards or as a record producer or as the sort of person who sells out the Royal Albert Hall without any publicity or indeed as the co-host of the Album Years podcast with Tim Bonas in which they 
they pick a year and talk about their favorite releases and whisper it. I think that podcast could actually be better than this one, which is quite outrageous to think about it, but it is very, very good. Um, but the reason we have asked him along is because of his masterful work with XTC's back catalogue, doing new stereo mixes and 5.1 surround versions of non-search drums and wires, oranges and lemons, skylarking, Black Sea, and not forgetting the Dukes of Stratosphere. He's also co-written at least two songs with Andy Partridge. So um, I even just reading all of that, Stephen, is is, is quite a mouthful. Um, I take it you're a very busy person. Well, yeah, I'm polymath mongus, aren't I? Well, you know, it's funny because during lockdown, I started even more projects. Um, I, I think it's one of the things that people think about me that I'm like this some kind of workaholic and I never sleep. But all I'll say is I just think it's such an incredible gift to be able to work, you know, in 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 the popular music industry, which is not the easiest thing to be doing these days, to be fair. That I almost don't want to, you know, I don't want to betray that 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 privilege, and I kind of fill every moment I can with doing something as a, you know, something musical, something creative. Yeah, and I get the re- really strong sense from from your podcast that before you're a musician, before you're a producer, before you're all of those, any of those things that I just listed, you're a fan, you're a music lover. You, you just like music. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm admiring Mark's wall of vinyl there behind him. And, and I have a similar wall of vinyl, which is kind of testament to that, you know, exactly what you've said. I still, I'm still as passionate about music as I ever was. And I think that's quite, you know, when you get to my age, it's quite unusual. Most people I grew up with at school, you know, their, their musical tastes are kind of defined and crystallized by those teenage years. And they never really get curious about music beyond that. And I'm still, you know, I'm still incredibly curious about discovering new music as well as sort of, you know, uh, having as much interest as I ever did in the music I loved when I was a teenager, of course, XTC included. And so one of the great privileges of my job has been able to immerse myself not only in the music, but in the very sort of, you know, building blocks, uh, you know, of those songs and recreating those mixes from the ground up, uh, which has been just an extraordinary kind of twist in my life and my career that I never planned. I mean, it kind of kind of fell into my lap in a way. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, if we take the example that Mariana's already brought in about Travels in Nihilon, if, you, if, if, if you're the fan who gets their hands on the master tapes of Travels in Nihilon as an example, um, hmm. I can imagine being completely overawed and, and, and intimidated by it, but um, you ha- have the ability to go in and, and uh, not exactly make it your own, but, but bring your magic to it. Do, do you find it um, uh, intimidating or is it, you know, what's the first thing you do when, you, when, you, when you're faced with, with a, a gargantuan track like that? Well, I'm a, I'm a bit of an old hand now. So I've been doing this for about 10 years, you know, remixing, not obviously not just XTC, but remixing, you know, these kind of sacred texts, unquote, quote, unquote. Um, and I've kind of got used to that now. So I started off remixing um, a lot of artists in the genre that I'm most closely associated with, which is kind of progressive rock, for want of a better way of expressing it. And I started off with bands like King Crimson and Jethro Tull. And certainly when I started, I was very um, overawed by, by, you know, by the kind of responsibility that I've been given. Because I think the one thing you have to understand is when you remix a classic album, XTC or you know any of these other groups, is that you are remixing them essentially for people who know them um, so well. You know they're not they're not being remixed for people who've never heard the albums before. Although actually, one of the beautiful things about doing the surround mixes is that some people 
who are into surround, who may not be into XTC, and I know this for a fact, have got into XTC as a result of investigating the surround mixes. It's the first experience they've ever had with XTC. But but I think that is a minority. I think most people that are buying a 5-1 mix of a classic album are people that have bought the album at least three times before, you know. So they bought the original vinyl release when it came out in, in, you know, 1979 or whenever it was. They bought the first CD edition. They bought the remastered CD edition with the bonus tracks. And now they're going to buy the Bells and Whistles version with the surround mix and the and the demos and all that stuff. So that kind of knowledge that you're mixing for people who arguably know the music even better than you and even better than the artist. Because let's face it, the artist usually doesn't go back to the music. And one thing I've found time and time again, whether it's working with Andy or Roland from Tears for Fears or Robert from King Crimson, is these guys haven't listened to their records for 30, 40 years. And I'm the same, you know, I, don't, I never want to listen. I never want to hear my bloody record. By the time I've finished it, I'm sick of it, you know. And Andy's no different. Colin's no different. And Robert's no different. So the fans, the people that are going to buy these Blu-rays or these DVDs with the 5-1 mixes on and the stereo remixes, they know them better than the artist. And they know them better than I do. I mean, I'm a fan, but there is always someone out there that's a bigger fan than you are. And this I've found out to my cost, you know, that I think I've got it exactly right. And then the album comes out, the surround mix comes out, or the stereo mix comes out. And I go on Amazon and I see a review saying, hmm, he's really messed this one up. The hi-hat was slightly further over to the right-hand side on the original mix. <laughs> How could he possibly miss that, you know? And you're thinking, wow, there, you know, even though you might be a nerd, might be a nerd. There's always a bigger nerd out there. And this is kind of, this is my, so this is the bar. This is the benchmark. This is kind of what I'm aspiring to so that these people are not going to be unhappy with what I do. And that's why I spend so much time, you know, looking out for those tiny little details, you know, perhaps the one word in the vocal that's had a little bit of reverb added to it just for that moment, or the fact the hi-hats just move slightly over to the left-hand side of the stereo spectrum for one chorus. And that's why I spend so much time, you know, kind of trying that forensic kind of analysis of the original stereo mix, even before I think about moving on to do the surround. Sorry, I'm, I'm probably preempting so many questions here. This is a very bad habit I have. I apologize in advance. <laughs> no, that, 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 that's brilliant. It's putting me in mind of an anecdote somebody I once heard, I once heard somebody say, which was um, about their grandmother who always made this fantastic stew. And, and he said, oh, grandmother, how do you make this fantastic stew? And she said, uh, the secret, because it always sounds, it always uh, tastes so fantastic. And, and how do you make this fantastic stew every time? And she said, the, 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 the secret was always to make it a little bit different each time. So everybody thinks it is always the same. And I'm wondering whether there's a, there's a parallel with music in the, in the sense that, that if you gave people exactly what they already had, they might somehow think it's, it's, it's not that it's different, you know, so in a way that you need to give it a little bit of a sparkle or something. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the, the, the kind of inherent paradox here is that people want the same, but they want to hear it differently. So mm -hmm. it's very, it's very, it's a very, very delicate tightrope you walk because you're not trying to change the music in any way. As I say, because people have been listening to this music sometimes for decades and they know it like the back of their hand and they don't want to be, they don't want to hear something which kind of jars with them. Like, oh, he's used a different vocal take or 
there's too much reverb on that guitar part, or you know, all those kind of things. But at the same time, it is a new experience to hear the music around you, to be immersed in that music. So it's kind of like trying to take the original stereo mix, not change it in any way, but just move it out into the three-dimensional world, if you like. And that's what I've aspired to with XTC and, you know, pretty much with all the projects I've done. With the Tears for Fears, the Seeds of Love album, um, there was a bit there where, because I think you, you actually did it years ago, but it took a while to be released, and there was the expectation kind of built up. And there were certain tracks, like the title track, for example, where you were thinking, that's going to sound amazing if I put one. It's just such a great track, it's going to sound brilliant. And because people who were really into surround sound get their expectations up, they over-expect so much. So there's no way you could possibly justify that. So you did a really good job, but it wasn't quite the... Well, you know, I, I think... Brilliant bells and whistles. There's a lot of stuff. One of the frustrations of doing the surround mixes is that you can't... You can't kind of like... Um, how can I put this? You can't apologize in advance for what you can't do. So, for example, I did a remix of an album called uh, called Phaedra by a band called Tangerine Dream. It's one of my favorite albums. And before I go, just, just kind of by, you know, to, to illustrate my point, this was an album that I think everyone thought was going to sound amazing in surround, myself included. And then I got the album multi-tracks and I realized that almost the entire piece, the side, this long piece that was on side one, was recorded on three mono channels. <laughs> so there was nothing I could do. There was, there was very little I could do to make it very surroundy, um, except when you listen to it in stereo, it sounds like there's all these layers and all these incredible things going on. And there are, but the way they tracked it was literally three musicians all being mixed to one mono track. And so I think a lot of people had an expectation that Phage was going to sound mind blowing, and there was very little I could do. Now, I'm not saying that was true of Seeds of Love because there was a lot of uh, uh, you know separation in the instrumentation there. But there were, for example, things missing, uh, which we couldn't find. There was one track, Woman in Chains, where the drums, we couldn't find the multi-track, so it was just a stereo. I just had a stereo drum bounce. Uh, the Phil Collins drum part. It's, it's funny you mentioned that one because that, that was the converse of the argument, whereas um, Woman in Change was a song I always thought was okay having heard it. It actually blew me away on the 5.1. I really appreciated it for the first time. So that's the thing about the expectations. Things, Songs that you think are going to be brilliant are not never as good as you hope they're going to be because it physically can't be, you know, that there's limitations. And then the songs that you you kind of think, oh, I'll listen to this, you actually hear them in the round more and you appreciate them more as a side of it. So I think if you can get over the expectations, and it ties into what you're saying about fans coming to them with a very critical ear, you know, when you talk about five put one surround, there was a lot of expectation around there that perhaps too much, you could say. Well, for, for the record, I loved the mix on on, on Seas of Love. <laughs> so, oh, no, I'm not criticizing it anyway. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought, I thought it was brilliant, and uh, I thought it was really great. Thank you. I, I, it leads to an interesting question, though, because you know, finding that balance of being true to the artist's intent and creating something new is is the is the thing the thing with the area where I think you've be you've really zeroed in and gained the uh, the trust of a lot of artists. When you know back when I was like again doing things with DTS and everything, there were all these grand producers, the Elliot Shiners, the Al Schmitz, and whatnot of the universe doing all these great things. But yet, it seems like you got you got to go places where a lot of them didn't and can you comment on that a little bit because i just think they're, um, they're, it's sort of fascinating can, and wonderful 
Can you can you clarify exactly what you mean by that, Mark? What, places that they didn't go. What do you mean by that? Well, it just seemed like there was uh, there was uh, in the audio file, at least from what I was seeing, is there were people complaining and things like that. Like Neil Young did uh, a brilliant mix of Harvest. Okay, I loved Neil Young's Harvest, but mm. it's a really unconventional mix. Okay, the, because he tried to recreate the sound. If you look at the back cover, they were did a lot of the recording in his barn. And in that mix, they tried to recreate the barn. So the drums are on one side and pedal steels somewhere else. It's not a conventional mix at all. And some people balked at that, you know. So they, I think they were trying a lot of things, uh, a lot of experimentation, and some people didn't like that. I thought the uh, the Flaming Lips on y- Yoshimi, on fight, I think it was on Fight Test or one of those, were... They actually flip the drum kit all the mm. way around the room, mm. uh, and it's insanity, but it's wonderful. Uh, and that sort of sense of freedom of trying new things is yeah. great, but it kind of stalled. Yeah, and you're I bringing think, it back. I, I think. I, yeah, I think there's, like I said at the beginning, I think it's a very delicate tightrope you walk because you are, you have to acknowledge to yourself if you're remixing stuff that you're doing it for people that, that have heard these records hundreds and hundreds of times before. So anything that kind of takes them out of th- what they're used to hearing is can be controversial. Now, we had a lot of fun. For example, we had a lot of fun with the Dukes of Stratosphere album. I was more, a lot more aggressive with that one because it seemed to suit the music. Um, and, I, and I can imagine, I haven't heard the Flaming Lips, but I know the band, so I can imagine it suited their music very well too. Neil Young, I'm not so sure if, it, if doing something quote-unquote gimmicky would suit that music. It's very organic. Um, and I think it's, there's definitely a case of, you know, what's right for a particular project um, mm. and, and trying to kind of adhere to... You know, the, the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to take all the glue away from music. What I mean, music, what I mean by that is, is it's very easy when you're in, in a surround scenario to suddenly start placing things so discreetly, for example, in one speaker or one channel, that suddenly all the glue that makes the sound cohesive isn't there anymore. And you get a drummer in one corner and a bass player in another corner. But it doesn't somehow... You know, there are, there are people out there who swear, for example, that the Beatles still sound best in mono. Um because there's something cohesive about the sound of the Beatles in mono. They're all coming from the same place. And I think that's the big risk with surround is you can somehow pull apart the strands of the music such that it no longer sounds cohesive. And I think sometimes surround fans overlook that. They were, you know, they, I mean, I'm getting this, I'm getting this now from the people that listen to Atmos because it's all going Atmos now, which is, an, which is a whole other level completely. You've got speakers above you. Um, and some people think you should be really aggressive with the speakers above you. And some people think, no, you should just use that for sound design elements and maybe ambience. And it's like, well, you know, everyone's got a different idea about. And interesting, yet another Mark was saying earlier that he had expectations of, of, a, of the way the Seeds of Love mix would sound. The thing is that if you gave the same multi-track tape to a thousand different people, you would get a thousand different yeah, mixes. Yeah. And that's the reality. So I can only do what feels right to me. And luckily, Touchwood so far, most of what I've done seems to have resonated pretty well with the fan base. But of course, people will always complain it's not what they wanted. It's not aggressive enough or it's too aggressive. 
And I think that in itself speaks volumes. You get the two opposing arguments. It's too aggressive. It's not aggressive enough. Therefore, maybe it's about right. I don't know. Uh, I, I, f- I face this a lot with the uh, audio files when I'm, you know, for my, my reviews, because the, especially in social media, when I post things around and people start saying, oh, it's, it's not realistic and everything. Well, this was a studio creation anyway, so it can be whatever the artist wants it to be. It wasn't necessarily a, mm. a classical performance on a stage in an or you know in a in a symphony hall per se. Um, so that there's a lot of it, it is a fine line. It is a fine line. I um, think I've been I think I've been lucky to work almost entirely with artists where realism was not the aim in the recording studio. What I mean by that is that when you listen to an ACDC album, for example, you're essentially, they're trying to present the sound of a rock and roll band exactly as you would hear them play live. That's not the case when you're talking about a band like XTC, certainly on the later, maybe the early records, yes, but in the later records, it's about the possibilities of using the studio. In exactly the same, exactly the same, tra- tra- you know, career trajectory the Beatles went through, starting out as a basic four-piece rock and roll band, presented in a very kind of basic, honest way, to these extraordinary productions. You know, later on, and XTC went through a very similar kind of career trajectory, where they stopped touring and they're almost using the studio as another instrument. And a lot of the artists I've been very fortunate to work with, I think the same is broadly true, whether it's King Crimson or Tears for Fears. Um, or Tangerine Dream is they're not con- they're not confined by realism. This idea of we must present the music as if we're playing it live on stage. They're not confined by that. So they're using you know all these techniques which are very you know particular and unique to the recording studio. So where does so so when so when you're mixing an album like that, it's almost like giving you the mandate to be more creative with the way you position things. Yes, you wouldn't really, you know, naturally you wouldn't really have a situation where you would have a guitar solo whizzing around the room, but fuck, it sounds great. You know, doesn't it? In the Dukes of Stratosphere, it just sounds great. So, um, you know, I I think I've been fortunate to work with with artists predominantly that are more interested in that kind of sound design approach to, to the recording studio. How does, how did some of these opportunities come up, come about? Like, I know, you know, you were, you put it out in absentia and Deadwing and, and surround sound, which were great. And then all of a sudden there's this King Crimson thing happening in that XTC. How did, how did that trajectory unfold for you? Cause it's fascinating and wonderful. So, yeah. So as I said, I, I kind of, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, it kind of fell in my lap, this whole thing. And I'm very glad it did, you know, but um, it, it happened by accident and it happened because so the whole story is that I was originally approached um, in 2002 by DTS. They wanted to do, they wanted Elliot to do a 5-1 remix of the album that Porcupine Tree had just recorded called In Absentia. And I knew nothing about, knew nothing about Surround Sound. But I, you know, I shrugged my shoulders and said, yeah, sure, why not? I've heard of Elliot Shiner. He's going to do a good job. Um, just let me hear it before you put it out. So Elliot did the mix and sent it over. And I hired a studio in London to listen for the first time ever in my life to listen to a 5.1 mix and a mix of one of my records. And I hated it. (laughs) And I hated it not because he'd done a bad job, 
but because I'm a control freak and it's not the way I would have done it, which circles us right back to that whole thing we were talking about, that everyone has their own perspective on how they would do a surround mix. And probably in their head, they hear it in a different way. And I heard it in my head in a different way, but I thought, wow, you know, there's something about this that's really cool. So I persuaded the record company to fly me over to to New York State and to sit there with Elliot while he basically tweaked his mixes to my liking. And I came away thinking, this is amazing. Uh, I've got to, I've got to get myself kitted out with, you know, with my, in my own studio so I can do everything in surround. And it, it was interesting because it was at a time, you probably remember this, Mark, it was at a time when five, one really hadn't taken off. So it was kind of in its death throes in a way as, as regards, as, certainly as regards the big record companies investing a lot of money in it. And they'd done a lot of remixes and, and I realize now that a lot of them weren't so great, which probably didn't help. But anyway, um, they'd done a lot of remixes and they'd been paying like six figure sums, you know, to get like pet sounds, which was recorded on four track, you know, remixed into surround sound and not doing a very good job. Anyway, to cut a long story short, 5-1 was not a thing, really. Elliot was one of the only people left doing it at that time. But I just loved it. And I, th- you know, and I've always been more interested in the creative aspect of things anyway. So I got myself kitted out with 5-1 and I started to mix everything from then on in myself and 5-1. And I was, I was approaching it like an idiot. I'd not really heard anyone else do it except Elliot. So I, I kind of cribbed a lot of ideas from Elliot and I just did what sounded good to me. And it turned out that a lot of the surround community seemed to respond really well to the way I thought it should be done. And then I got then I got the Grammy nomination for for a, a porcupine tree album called Fear of a Blank Planet. And suddenly some suddenly people started to take notice. And I got invited by the manager of King Crimson to have a go at um, a King Crimson record. And all I'll say, you know, to cut a long story short, from then on, one door leads to another. So the King Crimson stuff came out, it got very well reviewed. And then EM, Jethro Tull and EMI came knocking and said, well, can you do Jethro Tull now? And then that led to this and that led to that. And so I've been very fortunate in that, you know, that one door has kind of, you know, led to another, um, which led me eventually to XTC, I think about 2013. And I'll be the first to admit that I was actually pursuing that gig. I said to Declan, who runs... Uh, who runs Ape House now for Andy. I said, look, I want to do, they're my favorite band. <laughs> I want to do XTC. And if Andy's not convinced, just let me have a couple of tracks. I'll do a five one. He can come and listen. And I'd done the, and I'd done, and that was kind of pragmatic in a way because I'd done that before with a few other artists that were skeptical. I'd said, look, just give me a couple of tracks. Let me do a five one mix, get them to come along to my studio. I guarantee you by the time they've heard it, they'll be in. And Touch wood, that's always worked out for me so far. So Andy came along and I think I'd done, I think I'd done a couple of tracks. I think I'd done Complicated Game and Making Plans for Nigel from, from Drums and Wires. And Complicated Game particularly just sounded phenomenal in Surround. One of my favorite of all my 5-1 mixes. And of course, when you get the artist there hearing their music done with good taste, but suddenly sounding three-dimensional, what's not to love, you know? And he was jumping up and down in his chair and he's like, we're going to do the whole catalogue. Um, and I'm, I'm like, yeah, sure, <laughs> uh, bring it on. And, and, you know, and so six albums later, we're, we're, um, we're kind of halfway through that process now. 
And am I right in imagining that as a fan going into a track like Complicated Game, that you must be learning so much just even before you get onto the 5.1 yeah. stage, just listening to it and taking it apart and saying, oh, they did that, oh, they did that. Do you find yourself being surprised, I imagine in particular by XTC? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that's the great thing about XTC, isn't it? Is is it's the apparent simplicity uh, is is uh, is an illusion uh, because there's an incredible complexity, um, not necessarily in the musical side, but in the way that things are arranged and the way that things are layered. Um, it's incredibly sophisticated and, and, and complex, you know, and and I love that. And you're absolutely right. I learned so much from deconstructing and reconstructing these albums, any of these albums I've worked on. I've learned stuff. And I've learned stuff in a way because I've had to figure out what they were doing because they can't tell me, you know. Actually, Andy's kind of an exception. He does remember, but a lot of these guys, they don't remember. You know, like I say to them, how did you do that? How did you get that sound? Well, I don't know. It's 30 years ago. What do you expect? You know, and so I'm kind of left with this conundrum. How can I recreate this particular sound? And so I figure it out, or I figure out at least something that sounds roughly the same. And then that becomes part of my toolbox, a technique that I can then use in my own music or on, on a future remix. And I've had that many times, you know, figuring out how to create the phasing effects on the Dukes of Stratosphere record, you know, which they did, with, you know, they did originally with tape. You know, we, we're not using tape, we're using digital files. So I went out there and I literally bought every phaser plugin that was available on the market, which was about 20, and listened to every single one until I found the one that I thought sounded the most authentic. And now I use that phaser plugin on all my other stuff too, you know, because it's fantastic. So there's kind of, there's a lot of opportunities for me to, to learn um, because I have to, I, I have to figure out how they did these things. Um, so I'm, I'm much more equipped then for the next project. And is it possible to stay in love with these records when you've so meticulously taken them apart or do you, is it you, cause you just said with your own stuff, you don't want to listen back to your own stuff. Does it become a bit like that when with any of these albums that you've just heard them too much? That's a very good question. I, I, w- I would say this, that. Usually when I reconstruct and deconstruct the albums, I come out with even more admiration than I had before, but I never want to hear the fucking thing ever again. <laughs> so, um, I, d- and that, and that is, unfortunately, that is, that is the, uh, the downside of this. Most of the albums I've remixed, you know, listen, maybe in 10 years from now I'll be up, but I don't need to hear them ever again. Um, but at the same time, I have even more, even more admiration for them than I did to start with, because you're literally being able to analyze every, every creative decision that artist has made that you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily aware of when you're just listening to this, you know, stereo mix, it's just a great pop song, but you start deconstructing the music and you hear every little creative decision they've made from the way they've EQ'd the snare drum to the way the bass you know, doesn't just follow the guitar in a, particularly with XTC, never follows the, the guitar in a linear way, um, to the way the two guitar parts interlock. Uh, all of the, the way the backing vocal harmonies have been constructed and all that stuff, work, the string arrangements, all of this stuff gives me even more admiration for, particularly for XTC. What are some of your favorite moments, not only from XTC, but also from your remixes on Yes and tall, gentle giant thing, moments that you 
fell in love with the music even more and then got new creative ideas for what you would do in the surround mix. What are some of some some examples of some of your favorite moments that you worked into the mix because of what they did? That's a really, really hard question to answer because they're so numerous. <laughs> um, and a lot of a lot of this, unfortunately, you know, my memory's going these days too. A lot of it is now lost in my memory. There, there's there's certainly a lot of there's certainly a lot of situations where um, not only with XTC, but just generally where tracks, which I'd perhaps not ever considered to be amongst my favorites, become my favorites in surround. Um, mm-hmm. There's something about certain tracks that almost seems like stereo can't contain them. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm sure you do. Yeah. If you, if you, if you listen to surround, absolutely. there's certain tracks. There's certain- Relayer. Yeah, Relayer, and and certain albums as well, where where it's it's almost like there was so much information that stereo was never enough, and suddenly being able to break it out into surround and to be able to hear the various, you know, the way the parts interlock, the counterpoint um, that you just don't hear in stereo, or the or the details that you know. One of the things that I hear time and time and time again with surround mix is is fans saying, "Oh, I'm hearing things in the mix that I've never noticed before," and that's the beauty of surround is being able to position that little moment that perhaps was lost in the stereo, but putting it in the back speaker suddenly now, oh wow, I never noticed that before because it's kind of isolated in a more discreet way in the surround spectrum. And, and that's doubly true in Atmos now with the 12 speakers rather than the six speakers. It's incredible. So I think there's been a lot of situations where I've mixed tracks, which I, I probably wouldn't have rated amongst my favorites, and they've become amongst my favorites by virtue of being suddenly three-dimensional and being able to hear all this incredible detail that I just wasn't aware of before. There was one on the um, Black Sea album that I never in a million years expected to hear if I put one and loved, and that was from Morgan Fisher's Miniatures album, the Andy Partridge um, History of Rock and Roll. History of Rock and Roll, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about the, the XTC releases is the fact that you don't just stop at the album. You know, you carry on with the other additional mm. tracks as well and give them the same sort of love. Mm. And I suppose from what you were saying about rediscovering the tracks, then certainly in Surround, those are the ones that would probably pop out more because, again, it goes back to expectations. You know, that these are the almost like the add-ons. But as you know, especially with XTC, they can in fact be where the treasure is as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, XTC uh, are, are, are such a gift because they do have, for every album, they have almost another album's worth of material, which is in a lot of cases, just as good, you know. Um, The one album I've not been able to do so far because we haven't found the tapes, where I really think the the B-sides or the extra tracks are just as good as the album is Mama, you know. Tracks like Desert Island, Toys, Jump, Gold, you know, just phenomenal. Um, It's almost like I want to get my hands on those tapes because I want to present the album as a double album the way it should be, you know. Um, And I think that that's the beautiful thing about about XTC is it's not just the album. There's this whole body of music, um, uh, you know, relating to each period in the band's history. Uh, And Andy Andy being obviously so prolific. Uh, And Colin, not not too shabby himself either. You know, there's a lot of great Colin songs that kind of ended up as B-sides too. No, Mumber is my favorite album, so I, I can't wait to uh, hear that one. That's my favorite XTC album, believe it or not. <laughs> it's, uh... I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. Yeah, I mean, it's actually the first XTC album I ever heard, and um, 
I still think it's probably my favourite. You know, it's a tough one, isn't it? It's it's, uh, it's a difficult choice, just to say that, because um, so many quality records, and they're all they all kind of inhabit their own very distinct universe. And I think that's the other thing I love about XTC is that every album has its own personality, and it's something I've really tried to adopt that kind of philosophy in my own career. And it's actually something that makes sometimes annoys the fans because one of the downsides of having a strong fan base. And I'm talking about the majority here, not the minority that, that, that do kind of encourage bands to develop. But the majority of fans always kind of want the same, you know. They walk through a door into a particular un- musical universe. And that could be drums and wires. In the case of XTC, it could be drums and wires. It could be skylarking. It could be oranges and lemons. They walk through the, the door into this incredible universe. And then forever after, they're looking to re- regain that kind of kick they got from that first experience. And so essentially what they want is they want the same album again, but with different words and a couple of different melodies. That's that's kind of inherent in being an artist and having a fan base. And I suffer from this too. A lot of my fans just want the same thing over and over again. But I've always taken a lot of inspiration from bands like XTC, artists like Frank Zappa, um, artists like Kate Bush, Neil Young, where it's almost like every album is like, okay, I've done that. We've done that. What can we do now that's completely different? Bowie, of course, being the poster child for that, you know. Um, And it's tough to conduct your career like that, and you pay a price. And I think XTC paid that price in in their commercial fortunes. They paid the price for almost reinventing themselves from album to album. And even Bowie, you know, Bowie, people forget, Bowie never sold the amount of records that his contemporaries like Elton John and Mark Boland sold. And part of that was because he kept on changing. You know, and I think XTC is exactly the same. They keep on changing. Now, we love that. As fans, we love that. But there's no question that they did pay a kind of commercial price for that. Jumping off of XTC for a while, since you mentioned Bowie, I'm thinking about some surround mixes I have of them, of him. Have you ever had the opportunity to go back and work on some of the old quads that were done and kind of re I mean, I know that there were a number of them that were repurposed and have been the moody blues and things, but there's a lot of things that are still out there that are, that could be turned into other, other, other better kinds of mixes. So I'm just curious if you ever got a chance to play with any of those or was there any interest or, or the record labels just don't care anymore. <laughs> I've I've never been sent a, a quad mix as a reference. I know, for example, that when I did, um, I think when I did some of the Jethro Tull 5.1s, there were pre-existing quad mixes from the 70s and I never heard them. And I, in a way, I didn't want to, you know, because I prefer in a way to just do it kind of instinctively and not not sort of wonder about what somebody did forty years ago with yeah. their, and of course that's yeah. a very it's a very different context. Anyway, quad was quad was a very different thing, you know. Um, so the answer to your question is no. I've I've I think to this day I've still never actually heard a quad mix of any kind. Um, so maybe that's for the best. I I just approach things with a very fresh perspective. You know, what can we do here? What what would what sounds good to me? I would I would love to hear you remix the Nectar albums. Well, unfortunately, there wouldn't be any market. I mean, th- this is another thing. Um, so, some people ask me, you know, somebody was asking me the other day about why don't you remix, um, was it Hatfield in the North? You know, and I love Hatfield in the North. Nobody would buy it. I mean, this is the thing. I it, It's a, you know, it's a lot of work. 
it is a lot of work. And even though I love it, and I'm and I'm and I'm mixing albums I genuinely love, and it is a labour of love. And there is an argument to say XTC is kind of a labour of love. It's never going to be a massive selling thing, but I think XTC is kind of on the borderline where they have enough of an obsessive fan base. And I think they're also appealing to a new generation of audiophiles that don't even know them. Um, so that makes it all worthwhile. But an XTC 5.1 mix might be heard, I'm going to guess maybe 5,000 people in the world will hear my 5.1 mix of an XTC record. And that's good enough for me. That, that's good enough for me. A band like Hatfield the North or Nectar, you're talking about a couple of hundred people are ever, ever going to get to hear that mix in 5.1. And I don't have time <laughs> to, do, you know, even if I love, <laughs> even if I love those records, I can't afford to spend three or four weeks of my life remixing an album yeah. just for a couple of hundred hardcore. So the reality is, so so the reality is that there's kind of a a, a cutoff point at which I would say, you know, it's worth it's worth my while, it's worth my time doing doing this ceramic because you know like most people i have an ego i want i want to do the work and i want people to hear the work so i'm not doing it just to please myself at the end of the day i am doing it because i want i want that reflected back at me you know that work reflected back at me hopefully in a positive way you mentioned one artist who probably would sell and there's a quote on the internet that one of the artists you'd love to do is kate bush well is that true for a start would that be would that be a set of albums you'd be interested in Working on there's yeah I mean there's a there's a there's a list of of artists that would be um, my ultimate dream jobs you know and Kate Bush is definitely near the top of that list um, Elton John Kate Bush uh, Prince um, and I've had conversations about all of these artists I've even had a conversation with Elton about remixing his stuff you know so it, it um, Kate Bush for, for Peter Gabriel's another one Kate Bush for whatever reason is not interested in surround. Um, and because she's so reclusive, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to do my normal trick of, of getting her up to my studio to hear a couple of things and, and persuading her that way. So I think, you know, one of the problems with surround is that there are preconceptions about it for people, particularly for musicians who perhaps haven't heard their own music mixed into surround. They have this idea because they've been to the cinema and they've seen Star Wars, uh, in a cinema where the the sound effects were whizzing around their head and over there, and they think, oh, that's what surround music sounds like. And of course, that's no, that that's not unless it's the Dukes of Stratosphere, um, which is the one exception. But that's not the case. And why would you do that in stereo? You know, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have things whizzing between the speakers in stereo. So why would you do that in five point one? But I think a lot of musicians have this preconception that surround music means the the the, the sounds are constantly whizzing around your head like you're in a like you're in a screening of Close Encounters or something. And so that's why I think it's so important to be able to get people that haven't heard music in surround before to just hear a couple of tracks you know and i always say to the labels or the managers or the artists just give me the multi-tracks for a couple of songs let me do them don't pay me anything let me just do them on spec just get the artist along to listen and if they don't like it fine we'll call it quits but that's never happened that's never happened every time they've heard their music in surround done tastefully as i think i do They've kind of really loved it, and I would love the opportunity to persuade Kate, but I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not expecting that to happen. 
I noticed somebody on Twitter the other day, and there was a, some sort of conversation about oranges and lemons. And the observer, I'm going to paraphrase, and the, but they said something like, "Oh, you should hear Stephen Wilson's remix." Uh, they were just talking about the regular remix, not the 5.1, uh, because uh, Stephen sort of t- took off some of the sort of hard digital edges of the mm. original, you know, 80s mm. uh, uh, sound. And and um, I'm just wondering whether there's a line. That, or how conscious you are of the line between the job that you're doing as a remixer and the job that the producer did, Paul Fox or whoever, Steve Lillywhite, whoever these people are, um, uh, uh, what they did, in, in, where it becomes yours and stops being theirs. It, it, that must be quite a, a, a tricky one to tread. Yeah, I mean, that's that's that tightrope again. Um, there, there are certain albums I've mixed where the... It seemed the consensus of opinion was that sonically improvements could be made, and I think Oranges and Lemons was was one of those albums. Um, others I can think of off the top of my head: Aqualung by Jethro Tull. Um, there, there are certain albums that that for whatever reason seem to be originally created in some kind of compromise scenario. Now, Oranges and Lemons comes from '89. Um, it sounds like an '80s record. It sounds like what they call what we call in the business a cocaine mix. Um, <laughs> now, I'm not I'm not suggesting that Paul Fox was on cocaine, but there are certain albums where it seems like the treble is almost painful, and they call them cocaine mixes because apparently, when people are on cocaine, and I've never done it, so I don't know. Apparently when people are on cocaine, they want everything to sound really bright and exciting. So they keep turning up the treble. Let's have more treble on the drums. Let's have more treble on the voice. And that's what's called a cocaine mix. I've done a few of these. When you're on cocaine, you want everything to thrill you. And so you keep turning up the treble because treble sounds exciting until it sounds painful. And it sounds painful when you're not on cocaine. And there's been a couple of records which sound, and Oranges and Lemons, again, I'm not suggesting it was a cocaine mix, but there was something about it that was always a little bit nasty in the high register, a bit bright, a bit brittle. And Andy said it to me, and Dave Gregory said it to me, and unfortunately the remastering that had gone on in the CD era had exacerbated the issue. And I'm like, okay, well, let's try and... You know, let's try and just rein that in and let's try and find a little bit more of the tone, that kind of mid-range tone in some of the instruments. And and I think again, we didn't go as far as we might have done for 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 fear of changing it too much, but we certainly did try and find a little bit more of the tone and the warmth that you might associate with an XTC record. Do you think some of that brittleness was actually due to the technology of the times and the kind of digital sure. recorder they were using? Yeah. Well, you say that, yeah, that's interesting. I would have said yes. And the miking techniques, which are, might have been a little bit different for the I digital would, recorders. I would, have, I would have said yes, were it not for the fact that Apple Venus, which is a wonderfully organic and warm sounding record, was recorded on a digital system at CD resolution, 44.1, 16-bit. Oh. And it sounds wow. beautiful. Seeds of Love was recorded at 16-bit on very early generation digital machines, and it doesn't suffer from the same thing. So, but I think, but I think you're right. There's certainly an element where the technology, the, the early generation of digital recording technology, um, particularly with the low resolution 16-bit, 44.148, you know, wasn't doing the music any favors. So 
There is an element of that, but I don't think it's as simple as that because, as I say, there have been beautiful sounding records that were recorded at relatively low resolution. Uh, I loved what you did with um, with Nonsuch. Uh, that was another one of those pleasant surprises. How nice and warm it sounded, especially on the vinyl mix when you got when I got that. It sounded great. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, as I say, I'm always trying to just get a little bit more out of the stereo. It, you know, the funny thing is the stereos. The stereo remixes were kind of a byproduct um, of the whole process because I'd never, I'd never intended to to create new stereo mixes. I'm going right back to the beginning now when I started doing classic album remixes. But my first, um, my first task was to to recreate the stereo mix as closely as possible, as faithfully as possible, so that when I started to break things out into five one. I had all the right balances. I had all the right EQs. I had all the right reverbs and processing. So I was kind of concentrating very hard on recreating the stereo mixes. And very early on during that, that you know, those early years of me doing the, the, the remixing, we would find, I'm saying we, me and the artist would find sometimes when we were going back and comparing to the original stereo mix, that there was something beneficial about the process of recreating the stereo mix too. So the stereo mixes started to be included in the reissues as kind of a bonus thing you know we'll throw in the new stereo mix too and the fans started to really love that you know and so we get to the xtc releases and we're not only doing the new stereo mixes we're doing the instrumental mixes too because it's easy you know you've recreated the stereo sure let's run off a version without the vocals you know let people hear you know the intricacies of the arrangement so it kind of span off into this whole world of just doing the stereo mix forget the surround just recreating the stereo mixes and sometimes though I say so myself, they were incremental improvements. And sometimes I don't think I managed to match the original stereo. Seeds of Love is an impossible task to match the original stereo. Um, but I got as close as I could, you know, and I actually forbid the record company from releasing my stereo remix because it wasn't as good. You know, I'm not going to compete with Bob Claremountain mixing through a, a you know, a, a Neve console, you know, in LA. I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, so, but there are other times when I, I, I'm compare, I'm a being the stereo mix, and I'm saying, you know what, I think this might be better than the original mix. And Andy felt that too with certain tracks. You know, he felt that we'd improved on the originals. And if nothing else, the original is always included in the package too. So you have that choice. You, you mentioned that even now the um, complicated game was among your favourites of, of your, your your remixes. Are there other XTC songs that um, stand out in your in your memory? As surround mixes or just generally? Well, I suppose it's both, the question is both, yeah, actually, as surround mixes and as as new improved stereo mixes. Well, the, obviously, you know, the, the, the one that I felt we made the biggest improvement with with the stereo was the aforementioned Oranges and Lemons because it had always sounded a little bit digital and a little bit 80s, and I think it, it does have a slightly warmer tone to it now. So I'm, re I'm very proud of that. In terms of pure, you know, creative... 5-1 or surround mixing, the Dukes of Stratosphere was just a gift, you know, um, <laughs> because when you're mixing a record like that, it's like, you know, there's no, there's nothing that's beyond the realms of, of bad taste or good taste. Um, things whizzing around, the, you know, there's a bit on 25 o'clock where on the stereo, the whole stereo image flips. So we did the same thing, but in 5-1. So everything that was in the front of the room suddenly flipped to the back of the room. You know, you don't get to do things like that very often. 
But that record, obviously, is is an exception. I've, I've actually got an embarrassing story to tell about that one. Um, I invited Mark Fisher around to mine when it came out to play the Five Point Run Surround Mix, and I played it, and we were kind of looking at each other going, it's a bit flat, it's it's not as good as we thought it was going to be. We thought it was really good. And what happened was, as preparation, I'd upgraded the firmware on my amplifier, but not loaded up the, the speaker how calibration files. So as soon as I realised that, the next day, loaded them up and it's chalk and cheese you know it was exactly what you've just said and so i still owe mark fisher a, a visit background to hear it properly <laughs> to find out what the yeah all that was about and i'm, I'm wondering Stephen, with uh, with um the duke stuff did you again that thing about being amazed by what they did they they were working on deliberately primitive equipment at a very very high uh, speed and it turned out to be one of their best uh you know, best-selling records ever. Did, 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 were you? What What was it like digging into the Duke stuff? Well, I was a bit worried about that record because I'd, I'd met John Leckie a couple of times beforehand, and he'd always said to me, "Oh, you'll have a tough time with that one because we were flying so many things in live into the mix." By which I mean, so they were mixing off the twenty-four. Uh, no, I think it was sixteen track, wasn't it? They were mixing off the sixteen track, but as he was bouncing the 16 track down to the stereo master he was also mixing in like you know farmyard animals and things live in the mix so and and that was partly true so there are th- so for example it's not the same cow on mole from the ministry it's a different <laughs> cow so i had to, i had to go and hunt around sound effects libraries to find you know cows and other things that, that to kind of recreate the sound. So the real, and things like that worry me because I'm all, you know, going back to the beginning of this conversation, I'm always worried that there are fans that are so immersed in this, so engaged with this music, they'll know that it's not the same cow. And that worries me. Um, but like Andy's like, no, fuck it. It's a cow. You know, it's, it's the same. So, the, you know, there are some things on the Dukes of Stratosphere that were, that were spun in live during the mixing that we kind of had to fake, you know, we had to find an equivalent to, to those sound effects. So I was a bit worried about that, but you know, um, otherwise there's so much going on in those tracks. That's a gift, you know, again, I, I use that word again, it's a gift for mixing in surround. Um, all those sound design, all those silly sound effects and all those psychedelic, you know, things whizzing around the room. I mean, that's in a way what 5.1 was in surround mixing was, invented for you know those kind of records um so in many ways that although it's not my favorite xtc record by a long chalk i think it's possibly my favorite xtc surround mix the dukes one year mm-hmm. so far mm-hmm. i'm just thinking in, in in a different era we would have had that cow on the podcast by now but um <laughs> change change times um intrude the cow yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just you, uh, Stephen. You were telling me about problems with Apple Venus, which we were hoping was going to be the next one. What, what what's the st- situation with that? Well, never say never, but at the moment we're missing too much, and um, that it's it's very interesting. It's almost like the newer the record is, the more problematic it is to track down all the elements. Because there was a time in the '60s and the '70s, and even the '80s, when bands just went in and recorded everything onto a, a piece of two-inch tape. And you get into the you get into the nineties and and they're running things live off click tracks and sympty tracks and MIDI tracks and they never put those things on tape, so they've got all the stuff on tape but they've also got other stuff running live off sequences and stuff, um, and a lot of stuff's missing. And then we get into we get into the the twenty first century, 
actually, I think Apple Venus is right at the end of the 90s, isn't it? 99. But anyway, they're working on the first generation of digital machines and they're backing stuff up every day onto exabyte tapes. I don't know if you guys know what exabyte tapes are. It's a horrible format. Horrible. For, I used to do it too. Horrible format. Exabyte tapes, which are prone to be a bit like DAT tapes. Yes, a big DAT. Oh, yeah. okay. Prone to be unplayable after about five years. I've got so many things I mixed onto DAT that I just can't even play now. Horrible, horrible media. Um, anyway, so at the moment we're trying to restore sessions from hard disk drives, exabytes, ADAT tapes, um, and we've got a bunch of tracks, but we haven't got vocals on some tracks. We're missing lead vocals. We're missing percussion overdubs. And no one knows where these missing elements are. Um, so it's very frustrating because I think that record w- would sound phenomenal in surround. What, what do you think about some of the technologies that are out there? There are computer-based technologies that can extract uh, individual instruments. Like they, I know that they did that for the Beatles at Hollywood Bowl quite successfully, and there was a couple Beach Boys tracks that were done that way, uh, turned into stereo and whatnot. Do you They're think there's good. any role for something like that? Well, arguably. I mean, I've used I've used software called Pentio to do up mixes. In fact, I did one one or two XTC tracks using Pentio, which is you if you don't have the multi tracks, you take the original stereo and you put them through this plugin called Pentio, which creates a pseudo surround. Um, kind of impression. Um, it's not the same. It's not discrete, but at least it sounds a little bit more immersive. So it doesn't jar when you're listening to the album in sequence. Um, I've used those things, but you're right. There is this new technology now, which I mean, there's this there's this company called Isotope who make this software called Music Rebalance, which is extraordinary. I mean, literally, you can play in a stereo track and it will isolate the drums, the bass, the vocal, and everything else. So you get four components. But I have to say, not without some quite extreme artifacts, digital artifacts. That's so right. it, okay. it's, That's what it, it's not ideal. I think it's okay if you have a stereo mix where you think the drums are a little bit too loud and you just want to bring them down a bit. That's okay. But to actually do a, a proper surround mix, there's too many digital artifacts at the moment. Um, I mean, it does its very best to kind of forensically get down into the music and separate the elements. But if you think about it, how can it? I mean, how can it? How can it isolate a lead vocal when there's all this other? It, it can't. It does. It does a fantastic job, but I don't think that's gonna. That's not gonna. If you're referring to the Apple Venus issue, that's not gonna work. That's not gonna work. What do you think? There's any chance that uh, a go go to or uh, white music might end up getting remixed? Oh, I would love to. I would love to. Two of my favorite XTC albums. I could say that about every XTC album, couldn't I? Yeah, I mean, I would love, to, <laughs> I, I would love to do, you know, tracks like Neon Shuffle and uh, um, Mechanic Dancing, Battery Bright. Yeah, absolutely, Beat Town. Um, I mean, listen, I, I'm, I'm actually a child of the post-punk generation. You know, I was, I became a teenager in 1980. So all, pretty much all of the music I hold dearest to my heart is the so-called post-punk music. So bands like Wire, Cocteau Twins, Magazine, and those XTC records, which I discovered, you know, pretty early on, um, probably in the, actually in the mid-80s. But because of where they came from, I absolutely adore those records. And actually, I think we could do a lot with them. Because as Andy keeps saying, the drums sound like, you know, uh, Tupperware 
Yeah, they sound like he's playing sort of old cardboard boxes and Tupperware. And I think I think we could do I think we could do a lot to make the mixes sound perhaps a little bit more vibrant and engaging. Maybe not. I don't know until I get the multi tracks. But but absolutely, they listen. The idea is to do everything. I, I I will not rest until I've done everything, all fourteen records, and we've done seven now, and we've kind of hit a bit of a brick wall in terms of of finding tapes, but. Um, you know, whatever comes up next will be the next one we mix. And that could be Go To, it could be Mama, it could be Apple Venus. It's whatever I get the next full set of tapes for. That, that'll be. And I think people ask this, what's the method of the releasing, the release schedule? The method is whatever tapes show up, that'll be the <laughs> next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, with XTC, you know, the, it, I think this really upsets Andy. You know, the, the tapes have not been cared for. They have not been looked after. And I guess a lot of it is depending on what label, you know, some of the labels have really looked after, like EMI, for example, really looked after the Jethro Tull tapes. Um, Virgin uh, did not look after their tapes. So a lot of things that I would love to have remixed, um, you know, there are other, there are other artists, other bands that, that, we, that I was in the frame to remix, and then they just couldn't find the tapes. Um, and those, some of those are on Virgin, the Black Sabbath catalog, the tapes are completely gone. You know, I, I, this is the band that invented the notion of heavy metal. And yet the tapes for most of their core catalog, the multi-track tapes are gone. They're missing. They might've been thrown away for all we know. Um, they might've ended up on a skip sometime back in those things are really sad, but then you have to say that with the caveat that nobody ever thought that they would ever need those tapes again. Why, you know, why would, everyone thought, okay, the multi-track tape is reduced down to stereo. That's the definitive mix. We're never going to need those multi-track tapes ever again. No one could have really foreseen, you know, um, 5.1 or even Atmos. And now, of course, the tragedy is that a lot of those tapes have been misplaced, XTC included. But I'm, I'm optimistic that the XTC tapes will, will, find, will finally track them down. I think they're there somewhere. They're probably mislabeled, misfiled in the wrong box, um, but we'll find them. The, the thing with the 5.1 mixes, as, we, as we've kind of talked, is with a few exceptions, um, very few folk actually composed with a view to 5.1. 5.1 was a add-on after, after that. With all the work you've done, have you for any of your own work, have you actually ever composed anything with a view of to it being in 5.1? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was the mentality that I had having discovered 5.1 is okay. When I'm now making a record, whereas I might have tracked a backing vocal twice, now I'll track it four times. Yeah, because this is going to sound great. We'll have one voice in each corner. So, and same, ah, acoustic guitar, double track it? No, let's quadruple track it. We can have one in each corner. So it starts to change your... You know, I, the mind boggles at what Brian Wilson would have done with Surround, you know, if he'd been making Pet Sounds or Smile Now, you know. Um, you know, and and those things definitely do change the way you think about music. And now I'm I'm working a lot in Atmos, which is a whole, you know, whole other level above even 5.1. Um, and I need to get Andy along to hear, you know, whatever we do next, I'm going to do an Atmos mix. And whether he wants it or not, he's going to hear it in Atmos. And I'm sure he's going to dig that too, you know. Um, so, you know, that whole thing about being able to put the music in the vertical plane as well as the horizontal plane um, is incredible. And again, XTC is just the perfect band 
for the, or at least the later records, an, an album like Apple Venus is the perfect record um, for, for an Atmos mix. I'm presuming from what you said earlier that you treat every album differently in terms of placing the listener within the soundstage. So you mentioned that uh, the, the vertical Atmos speakers are quite often used as ambient, and I think that's a big thing in classical recording. They tend to use the rear channels for ambient, and most classical music albums are recorded, I believe, as though you're sat half to a third of the way back in the audience you know, for optimal listening things, so the rear channel is just atmosphere. From what you're saying, I presume that your view on that changes depending on the album. I mean, for something like the Dukes of Stratosphere, I presume the audiences, the listeners in the middle of the studio and whizzing around at the same time, whereas something like an earlier album, then they would be third row from the front at the gig itself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, th- there's something about walking, stepping into a recording studio in a way that means all bets are off in terms of authenticity. You know, th- th- there is an element of whatever you do in a studio, there's an element of faking it. You're trying to create the impression of a cohesive you know, band sound in a very artificial environment. So, and XTC never shied away from using, certainly from Drums and Wilds onwards, never shied away from using the studio um, in a kind of creative way. Um, and so you get to albums like 25 O'Clock and Skylarking where it's, you know, it, this is music that could not be played live. Uh, at least not easily, could not be played live. So um, that's the beauty of those records is that kind of gives me the mandate to be similarly creative in a surround spectrum. If I was mixing uh, ACDC, for example, we we mentioned before, if I was mixing ACDC in surround, I wouldn't want to have the guitar solo coming from behind me or above. This is supposed to be a very basic rock and roll sound in the best possible sense. I love ACDC, but that's the way it's supposed to sound. So you wouldn't start whizzing things around the room and you wouldn't place backing vocal. I, I, I wouldn't do that with a band like ACDC. Um, but with a band like XTC, um, the philosophy of recording is completely different in the first place. Um, so it, it feels right to 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 pull those things apart and position them in, in a more discreet way. Um, sorry, I can't remember what the question was now, but I hope I've answered it. <laughs> it, was, it was just really about where you were placing the listener within the soundstage and whether that changed from album to album. Right, right. Yes, it does. I mean, it, you know, I think there's an element of me having a pattern to the way I approach things, a signature sound. And I'm sure people who listen to my surround mixes will say, in fact, I know they do because I've seen them talk about it on, online. Oh, it's it's the Stephen Wilson approach. And I do have a certain approach. You know, for example, I I usually have the drums and bass not completely front, just a little bit brought out into the room. I usually have the vocal in the center speaker, but not completely so. I'll have a little bit bleeding into the outs. I usually have the backing vocals in the rears. There is, to be honest, most of this is stuff that I learned from watching Elliot do that very first mix. And it just seemed to work. And so that's been... That's been my approach, but I'm also conscious conscious of that, and I try to break that pattern sometimes. I try to I try to do things a little bit different. Like the Dukes was great for that, you know, because it, it kind of made me think. Well, you know, let's not do. Why don't you not do your normal thing with this record? Uh, let's let's try and be a bit more wacky and a little bit more creative. So I'm always trying to break my own cliches in that respect too. Before we finish, I should make sure I ask you the question about collaborating with Andy Partridge because he did provide lyrics for, I think, two of your songs. What, what was that process like? It was great. I mean, Andy, you know, it's funny because mixing 
surround, I've had very, very different experiences with different artists. Like some artists just aren't interested at all. Um, like uh, Yes, for example, and also Simple Minds, when I did the Simple Minds stuff, the band weren't interested at all. Uh, Steve Howe came down for about an hour, listened to a few bits and said, yeah, that sounds fine, go ahead. And there was no engagement or interest from the artist at all. So I was basically allowed to do my own thing and my responsibility was to myself and to the fans. Um, and that was it, and to the record company. And then there's someone like Andy. And Andy, bless him, and I can see why he's driven producers crazy over the years, but I love it because I'm like him. I'm a control freak. I'll get emails from Andy saying things like, um, oh, that 5-1 mix, the, the, the new mix you've done of um, Mayor of Simpleton, um, I think you've got a little bit too much 10K on the hi-hat. Uh, and it's so, it's so specific. Or you've got a little bit too much 60 hertz on the bass drum on um, Omnibus. And he's absolutely, he's always right, but he's so specific. And I've never had that with anyone else. And the reason I mention that is that kind of also translated into when he was working on the lyrics for me, because I had a couple of songs that I didn't have any particular lyrical concept or idea. So I basically gave him carte blanche. And I said, Andy, just write whatever you feel. And you, as you probably know, Andy has this thing where he lets the music tell him what the song is about. So he listens to the music and he says, okay, this music tells me that the song is about this. And then he uses that as a kind of springboard for writing the lyrics. And he was literally ringing me up and he said, I've got another line. Here's the next line. And he would read me the next line. I said, are you happy with that? I said, yeah, that's great, Andy. Okay, okay I'll go and do the next line. And then I get a, a, another phone call from him and like an hour later, I've got the next line. And that degree of meticulousness, if there is such a word, I think there is, meticulousness uh, is something I've not experienced with anybody else, but that's exactly what I would be like in his situation because I am also a control freak and I totally get it. I totally get where Andy's coming from. and I, But I also acknowledge to myself how that might have driven a lot of people crazy over the years particularly producers, you know, you hire someone to produce, produce your record, but you're kind of, you know, you're not letting them in a way do their own thing. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I've very rarely allowed myself to be produced by anyone else, because I kind of acknowledged that to myself very early on. I'm unproducible. And I think Andy was unpro is kind of unproducible too, except because of the way their career developed, they signed to Virgin, they got placed with these superstar producers. He got himself, he, you know, he found himself in this world where he was always working with producers. And I'm not sure if he was really producible. But then the evidence is, is to the contrary, isn't it? They produce this extraordinary body of work where every album sounds different, perhaps because every album was done with a different producer. Maybe that was part of, part of why every record does sound different. Um, you know, who, you know, who, who can say really what would have happened, uh, if things had been different, but, but yeah, so I, I kind of acknowledge that and admire that in him and I recognize it in myself. Um, so the answer to your question, it was, it was a joy and, and, um, he was very, very meticulous about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Th that's been fantastic that I, I've, we've learned about cocaine mixes and the inside and the outside of these uh, 5.1 mixes and the regular stereo mixes. Stephen, that was been fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for Mark and Mark and me, Mark. And uh, we'll see you again on the What Do You Call That Noise, the XDC podcast. Anon. Thank you very much. Pleasure. It's been fun. Cheers, Marks. Bye now. What?
do you call that noise? Thanks to Mariana, Mark, Mark, and the fantastic Stephen Wilson. And many, many thanks to the podcast supporters on Patreon who make it all possible. They include the following nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Matt Bell, Kevin Burt, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Helen Fay, Peter Fermoy, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Ian Morris, Yusuf Murra, Amy Parkinson, Murray Meikle, Kevin Murray, Karen Neal, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and William Wiltstrom. If you'd like to support the XTC podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. And if you want to try my XDC books, there are two of them available at xdclimelight.com. See you next time. What do you call that noise? Head to xdclimelight.com where you can buy my two XDC books. First, there's the XDC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls, which is an anthology of Limelight, the XDC fanzine I made from 1982 to 1992. We had a couple of lifelines to the world, and, and Limelight was one of them. So the book is the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls. It's stunning. Thank you, Ian Lee. And then there's What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book, where you'll find more from the band, plus commentary from musicians, including Anton Barbo. For me, it's just simply a life-changing song. And McHugh. It's like a painting by Van Gogh. Jason Faulkner. XTC probably made the most impact on me of, of any band that I can think of. Chris Butler. If there's anything more classic XTC e e e e this is it and Rick Buckler it was well produced as well it had the support of a great producer I mean it really sounded strong order your copies of both books at xtclimelight.com it's a paper and ink net the internet with with added staples